0: So, we're in Matthew 16, and uh, we're working our way um, very methodically through these words uh, recorded for us about a very important story, uh, an occasion on which Jesus was with his disciples um, <clears throat> before he went to the cross in Jerusalem, but not long before. It was in the later days of his ministry. And um, I happen to believe personally that this is a really significant interaction. Uh, that Jesus had with his disciples, and that is, is significant not just for them, but significant for us as well. It's been very significant for me over the years as I've thought about this story. In fact, I'm sure that several of you have heard me teach on this story, and some of what you hear this morning will be familiar to you, but I hope you'll take it not, not just as a, a reminder, but as a, an opportunity to refocus on something perhaps that you're familiar with, but that we often lose sight of. And so let's uh, stand together, and I want to read for you from Matthew 16, verses 13 to 18, this account of Jesus' interaction with his disciples at Caesarea Philippi. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. This is the word of the Lord from Matthew 16. You can be seated. Thank you. So just uh, to help me out a little bit here, raise your hand if you remember hearing me speak or preach on this passage of Scripture before. Okay, so good, about half or so, maybe a little more than half of you. Um, It's a familiar story, perhaps to many of you, and especially if you've heard me teach on it. And we've been working our way through the story uh, rather systematically over the last several weeks. We've talked about the question that Jesus posed We've talked about the answer that, Jesus, that Peter offered. And then we've talked about the beginning of Jesus' response to Peter in verse 17, where Jesus replies, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. An important part of this whole story and the interaction that Jesus has with Peter and the other disciples is about the reality of revelation, right? We don't come to recognize who Jesus is and what he's done for us, just by our own intellect, it has to be revealed to us by the Father. And so as we interact with other unbelievers, as we think about people that we might want to invite to church with us, we should be praying that God would reveal himself, that God would make himself known, that the power of revelation would be released into the lives of those who are yet to receive Christ and be connected to His church. So this morning we're going to press on into verse 18, and then next week we're going to finish the story uh, with a focus on verse 19, which I did not read for you today, but we'll come back to it uh, next week. So let's, let's dive into this together here, and, and as we continue our exploration of this passage uh, for the Lenten season, Again, I want to focus with you today specifically on the words of Jesus in response to Peter. And even more specifically, the second half of Jesus' response to Peter found in verse 18. So Peter, get the, you know, get the picture in your mind. The, the disciples are gathered in this place called Caesarea Philippi. Uh, they're probably on location uh, somewhere near the picture Uh, represented behind me, which is in Caesarea Philippi. We'll talk more about the significance of that location in just a bit. And Jesus has brought them there on purpose. It's out of the way. And he's brought them there to ask them a question and then to teach them an object lesson. And he begins with the question, who do people say that I am? They offer some thoughts, some ideas, and then he personalizes the question, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that brings us then to Jesus' response in verses 17 and 18. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. There are lots of key words to focus on in these two sentences, these two verses that Jesus speaks back to Peter in response to his confession. For example, many years ago, and some of you will remember this, um, the Lord spoke this promise to me. uh, Actually, it was about almost 18 years ago when we moved to Lansing to plant this church. Uh, I was obviously um, challenged at the idea of starting a church from scratch? How is this going to work? Is this going to work? Are we going to, you know, are we going to be able to actually do this and survive? Will the church survive? Will we survive? You know, how hard is it going to be? What's it going to be like? What are, the, what are the challenges that are going to be involved in beginning a new church? And I felt uh, at that time in my life, I felt a strong sense of God's calling to come here and to do this. I felt as if he'd spoken to us really clearly that this is where he wanted us to be, and this is what he wanted us to do. But of course, I, I was not at the time without any anxiety about it. This was a big step of faith to leave our comfort zone in Holland, to leave our group of friends in the church where I'd worked as an associate pastor for 10 years. And so I was, I was really prayerful about it. Um, But, you know, sort of fighting back um, a a bit of anxiety about how it was going to play out. And at the time, the Lord drew my attention to this promise in verse 18. I tell you that on this rock, I will build my church. Now, if you notice the emphasis that I just gave to two particular words in that sentence... They were the words I and my, because it's a promise from Jesus. Jesus is saying, hey, it's not your church, it's mine, and you don't have to worry about building it. You just have to be a faithful servant, but I'm the one who will build my church, right? Honestly, I found that very encouraging. I found that very helpful, very insightful, very um, empowering because it released me from this sense of obligation or responsibility to make it happen. I recognize that Jesus has got to make it happen. If it's going to happen, he's got to make it happen. I just have to be faithful to him and trust him to do what he's promised. So this verse has very specific and personal meaning for me. And and that meaning is, is wound up in the words I and my, Right? Jesus says, I will build my church. But that doesn't mean that there aren't some other words here that are really important for us to think about. And the word that I really want to focus with you on this morning is the word church. I will build my church, Jesus says. Now, let's think about this for a minute here, just by way of introduction, before we dig in to what Jesus meant by that. Let me... Let me invite you to think with me for a few moments about this idea, this concept, this word, church. Tell me if I'm, I'm wrong, but I, I think it's true that many people in our society today would say that the whole idea of church and the practice of church, whatever that is, is on the rocks. On the rocks. And by that, I mean, of course, not. it's not a good thing that it's on the rocks. I mean, it's in trouble, right? If a ship is on the rocks, it's about to crash. We won't talk about drinks being on the rocks. That's a, the wrong analogy here. But but if a, if a ship is on the rocks, it's about to crash. It's in, it's in a rough place. It could go down, right? When, something's, when a marriage is on the rocks, the marriage is troubled. We all understand this phrase to mean that something is in in a state of difficulty, in a state of adversity. It's challenged to survive. And I I submit to you, again, I could be wrong, but I submit to you many people in our society think that the church is on the rocks in that sense. They think the church is in big trouble. The church is on the decline. Think about the elves and the Lord of the Rings, right? Right? how they're fading into irrelevance or whatever the concept is, fading out of their former glory, the elven kingdom. And that's the way that I think many people consider the church in our society. It's fading into irrelevance. There are plentiful statistics to back all this up, and I'm not going to bother you uh, by quoting them, Uh, but what they all point to, if you want to look at the studies from Barna and others is an increase particularly in the number of young people that are referred to as nuns have you heard about this the nuns i mean n o n e apostrophe s the nuns not n u n s not that kind of nun right nuns as in no religious affiliation if somebody's asked on a survey how would you what religion or or faith would you identify yourself as they choose the word none. The percentage of people in that category has risen dramatically over the last 20 years in America. There are many more, particularly young people, who identify themselves as having no religious affiliation than there used to be a few generations ago. Here's an example of how you know all the hand-wringing that's going on I came across an article recently titled with this attention-grabbing headline. Tell me if you'd want to read it or not. Church as we know it is over. Here's what's next. Church as we know it is over. Here's what's next. I'm not going to bother to quote the article. And the reason why I won't do that is because I disagree. And I think Jesus disagrees. I think the church is on the rocks, but what I mean when I say that is very different than what other people mean when they say that. In fact, Jesus himself said that the church is on the rocks right here in Matthew 16, 18. But he meant by that something very different than what most people mean when they think about the church being on the rocks. Is God worried? about the state of his church? I don't think so. He might be a little disappointed now and then, but he's not worried. He's not wringing his hands. He's not sitting up in heaven thinking, oh my goodness, what, what's going to happen to my church? What's going to become of it? Is, is it going to survive? No. God has absolute confidence that his purpose for his church will be accomplished. And I can prove it to you from Matthew 16, verse 18. So let's focus in here on this word, ekklesia. Ekklesia is the Greek word that's translated church in Matthew 16:18, And it's a word, quite frankly, that's loaded with meaning that you may not be aware of. So whatever misconceptions people have about the church, whatever ideas they have about the church and its future, what I want you to focus on with me is Jesus' idea of the church, Jesus' mindset of the church, Jesus' viewpoint regarding the church. Because really, Matthew 16, 18 is a promise from Jesus about the church, And he had some very specific things in mind when he spoke these words to Peter. And the wonder and power of these words is that they apply to us. They weren't just for Peter. They weren't just for the first disciples. They apply to us here and now just as well. So raise your hand if you've heard this word, ekklesia. It's a Greek word. Okay, now raise your hand if you know what it means in Greek. All right, okay, a few people, a few less than before. Um, I don't know how many of you, if any, have ever spent much time studying the etymology of this word, and I'm going to try really hard not to bore you with too much etymology this morning, but I think it's really important, actually, for us to understand this concept. The ideas that are communicated in this word have great significance for us. Because if we don't think about the church in the way that Jesus thinks about it, something's wrong. We're going to have a hard time living up to what Jesus has in mind for us. So here's what I want you to start with, right? Ecclesia was originally a select group. Elliot, if you'd go to that first point for me. Ecclesia was originally a select group of citizens. Called out from the rest and assembled together to help govern and serve their community. Now, notice something very specific about this definition that I've just given. There's no religious or spiritual significance to it at all. In other words, what I'm saying is that this word, as it was originally used in Greek, had no spiritual significance. In fact, it was a political word, a civic word. It was a word that was used to describe an assembly of citizens in in the ancient Greek city-states, like Athens, for example. And this use uh, was common in about 600 B.C. So in other words, 600 years or so before the life of Jesus, 600 years before Jesus spoke this word, this word was commonly being used among Greek people to refer to a group of citizens that were called out from the general population and assembled together to make decisions and to help govern and serve the community that they represented. That's the original context of this word, ecclesia. So it referred specifically to an assembly of citizens called out from among the general population and gathered together for the purpose of discussing and conducting public business. Again, it was a political and civic term, not a spiritual term. So the assembly of the ecclesia was actually one of the first political experiments in democracy that the face of the earth had ever seen. The ecclesia was a group of citizens representative of the general population that would help to govern their city-state by making decisions, voting on resolutions, making decrees on behalf of the well-being of their city. If it helps, you can maybe, uh, maybe it doesn't help actually, come to think of it. it, but if it helps, you can think of this as a... As a larger than normal city council of sorts. And perhaps now that I say that, you understand why I'm not sure if it if it's helpful to think of it that way. Because not all city councils have a great image, do they? Just a side note. Um, anyway, in this case, it was like a, a really large city council that would gather, and as I've studied this. Uh, I learned quite interestingly that the that the ecclesia in ancient Athens would gather at least forty times a year. So, you know, more than once a month, not quite once a week, um, but a good number of times, more than once a month. This group would gather on behalf of the city state that they represented to govern, to make decisions to vote, to discuss, to debate, and to to lead and serve the community that it represented. So to summarize then, in ancient Greece, an ecclesia was literally a gathering of those summoned to exercise governing authority on behalf of their city. Think about that. Three three key principles that are kind of hidden in this um, example uh, from the Greek language. The Greek Classic Greek ecclesia was a select group of citizens, number one, that was called out from the rest, and there's etymology even behind that. The word ecclesia is a compound of two segments, ek, which is a proposition, preposition meaning out of, and kaleo, which is signifying to call or to call out, is the meaning literally of the word. To call out. So these citizens were called out from the rest of the general population. They were assembled together in a meeting or a gathering, and they were granted governing authority. That's the most significant part of this. All three pieces of this meaning are important, but I believe the most important is that they were granted authority to govern on behalf of the rest of the population, for the well-being of the rest of the population. Now, so that's the backdrop. 600 years before the life of Christ. That's the way that this word was being used. Then, we're going to fast forward a couple hundred years to around 300 BCE, 300 years uh, before the life of Christ. And you'll find that the same word, ekklesia, was, was given a new twist, a new meaning. Because it was used at that time in the Septuagint, by the translators of the Septuagint, which, if you're not familiar with that, is the Greek version of the Old Testament. So, of course, the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. Then, in Greek society, it was translated from Hebrew into Greek. And when the Greek translators, the Greek Jews, went to translate the Old Testament from Hebrew to Greek, they had to figure out, well, what word are we going to use when God calls together a sacred assembly of his people. And they chose the Greek word, ekklesia. So at that time, about 300 years before the life of Christ, the word began to take on spiritual significance. It still had all of its political meaning as well. It still had to do with being called out, assembling together and governing. But in this case, it was... What was added to all that was a spiritual significance. This is not just an assembly apart from God, a secular assembly or a civic assembly. This is a sacred assembly in the presence of God with God to make decisions on behalf of the general population of God's people. So, in this case, the meaning shifted then to include spiritual purposes as well as civic purposes. In this later context, the word took on the meaning of a a sacred assembly. Not just a civic assembly, a sacred assembly in which representatives of God's people would gather before him both for worship and to deal with the official business of their community, to make decisions on behalf of the rest that were in the best interests of God's kingdom. So, for example, the first instance of this particular word, used um, in the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, comes to us in the Law of Moses from Deuteronomy chapter 4. Listen to this passage and think about three references, three uses of the word ecclesia in this context. And I'll just insert them for you so that you'll kind of understand where they would come and um, where they belong, even though you can kind of follow along behind me uh, on what the NIV translation says in English. So Moses wrote, only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children, how on the day of the Ekklesia before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Ecclesia the people to me that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children so. And you came near, and ekklesiaed at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom." Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sounds of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess." Okay, so in this passage from Deuteronomy 4, there are three different uses, three references to that Greek word ekklesia, when the Hebrew gets translated into Greek, and in each case they represent, two two of them in noun form and one in verb form, they represent a sacred gathering of God's people in his presence, and in this case specifically, the, the sacred assembly on which God made covenant, the covenant of the law. With his people at Mount Sinai, where he gave them the Ten Commandments. So that's the first use of the word ecclesia in the, Septu- in the Septuagint. And then it's used multiple times after that throughout the Old Testament to refer again to a sacred assembly of God's people in his presence. Listen to the conclusion of one biblical scholar regarding the significance of this term as it's used throughout the Septuagint, the Old Testament. He writes, It's evident from the use of ecclesia in the Septuagint that the word held a deep significance for Greek-speaking Jews. The ecclesia of the Lord was the covenantal assembly of Israel. This body, when assembled, worshipped God, Appealed to God, repented to God, and made choices for the nation as a whole. To stand in the midst of the ecclesia was a significant responsibility. Not all who dwelt among the Israelites could enter the ecclesia, but to fail to come together in the ecclesia was a serious breach of duty for those who were eligible to participate. So I want you to hear in that explanation, that definition, the honor that's communicated about the privilege of coming together to assemble as part of the ecclesia in the presence of God. This was serious. This was a great honor. This was a great privilege. This was a great responsibility. And the Jewish people understood that term and the use of that term to represent a reality that that they were expected to step into willingly, joyfully. We come together to worship God. We assemble together as those who've been called out from the general population by God to do business with him on behalf of the world. And here, of course, we see the same three ideas from the Greek political use of the word that are still at play. This group is called out by God, they're assembled together by God, and they're given authority, they're granted kingdom authority to do business with God on behalf of the general population. But that's not the end of the story. Okay, one more step here in our journey through history brings us all the way back now to the life of Christ and the first use of this word by Jesus, which is... Matthew 16, 18. First time Jesus utters this word comes in the context of this encounter with his disciples at Caesarea Philippi. And so I want you to think about all the meaning behind the word historically when Jesus says it in this context. And then notice what he adds to all that. Notice what he changes about all that. Everything that was there before is still there But Jesus is now adding something else to the meaning of this word. What does he say? On this rock, I will build my ecclesia, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's an amazing statement, that's a powerful statement. That's a promise from the lips of Jesus that holds great meaning for us. And part of what it means has to do with how we think about church. What is the church? Is it a building we go to? Is it a time that we meet? Is it an order of service or things that we do, religious routines and practices? No we we think of all those things and we use the word church to refer to all those different things but it's none of those things the church by jesus definition is the people of god called out from the general population and assembled together to help god govern his kingdom think about that that's what the church is that's jesus definition that's jesus viewpoint of the church. It's, a, it's an assembled group of people, a sacred assembly with a sacred purpose and mission. And that's, friends, that's what the church is meant to be understood as. It's not a building. It's not a prescribed set of religious activities. It's a sacred assembly of God's people to do business with Him, So I remember, and some of you probably have, will remember as well, um, learning this little song when I was a kid, going to Bible school, right? Or, uh, you know, vacation Bible school or whatever, Sunday school. Uh, and there's these great actions that go with it, right? You remember this, right? Here's the church, here's the steeple, open the doors and see all the people. You remember that, right? And... Uh, um, here, I, you, some of you have heard me say the, the punchline before um, here, here's the bad news that little song is entirely wrong theologically I mean it's fun to learn and it's memorable and kids you know, around the world probably know that little song and all the actions that go with it but really if you want to be theologically correct it should go like this here's the building here's the steeple open the doors, the church is the people. The church is the people. We are the church. We don't go to church. We are the church. The church is not the building. The church is the assembly, the sacred assembly of God's people to do business with him on behalf of the well-being of our city. And so what I'm saying is this is really important for us to understand. This is really important for us to think about because of the culture we live in and all the mindsets that people have about church. We have to know who we are and what we're called to do and be. We have to know how important this is. We have to know how valuable this is. We have to know how powerful this is. If we don't know these things, then we'll slide We'll let, in our own minds, you know, let the church kind of fade into irrelevance as well. Oh, well, it doesn't matter if I get up and go to church next week, you know, no big deal. Who cares? Who cares if I come once a month instead of every week? No big deal. Well, wait a minute. Yes, it is a big deal. And I'm not trying to ride on you if if that's your habit. don't get the wrong idea. What I'm saying is I want you to understand Jesus' mindset about the church, it's a sacred assembly of God's people called out from the world to do business with God. And when you see it that way, what else could be more important? It's, it's huge. And, and specifically, I want you to recognize the significance that we are called out and assembled together to help God Govern over our city. Think about that. That was the purpose of the original ecclesia. It's governance. There's a civic idea that's communicated in the very term that Jesus chose to use a responsibility to the well being of others around us who are not part of the ecclesia. So what all this tells us is that despite its shortcomings and failures, despite all the negative impressions that people have, the church, the ecclesia of God, was Jesus' idea in the first place. He intends to build it into something great and purposeful and powerful. It's a sacred assembly of his people gathered together for his purposes to be served. In other words, Jesus intends to use the church in our lives to accomplish his good purposes. And for that reason, let's not ever let our vision of what the church is be downgraded by our disappointments or our unmet expectations. Let's allow our vision of what the church is to be upgraded by what Jesus said about it and what he intends for it to become. We have to live up to his standard rather than living down to the world's standard. And that brings me then to two quick things. We're going to focus on this some more next week, so I'm going to come back to it because our time is just about up. But just quickly, I want you to recognize two other things in verse 18 that Jesus said about the ecclesia. First of all, he said the ecclesia, or called-out assembly of Christ's followers... Is built upon a firm foundation of solid rock. Now I don't know about you, but when I when I think of this image of the church being built on a rock, my mind goes back to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. There are lots of references, of course, throughout the New Testament to rocks and their symbolic significance, um, and we'll we'll look at a few of those as time permits, but. But in particular, think about the words that Jesus spoke at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. What did he say? Do you remember? The grand conclusion of those three chapters of instruction at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. So let me ask you a question. Wouldn't it be crazy of Jesus not to follow his own advice? I mean, if Jesus says, build your house on the rock, How crazy and foolish would it be if Jesus didn't build his house on the rock? Or his church on the rock in this case. And again, understand the use of the word house is symbolic here. He's talking about your life, not your house. He's not talking about the place where you live. He's talking about your life. Your house is symbolic for your life. Jesus is saying, build your life on the rock, not on the sand. And then... Oh, isn't it interesting? Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church on this rock, Jesus says. On this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, what rock is he talking about? What is the rock that the church is built upon? Well, that has puzzled theologians for many, many, many years And there are actually four different interpretations of what the rock is. And um, again, just for the sake of time, I'm going to cover this really quickly because I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. Uh, We've talked about this before. The first option is that the rock is Jesus himself. The second option is that the rock is Peter. In fact, the name Petros, Peter, literally means rock. The third option is that the rock is Peter's confession of faith. And the fourth option is that the rock is the rock of the gods, which is right where they were standing when Jesus said these words. Which one is it? Well, guess what? Jesus is so clever and wise that I believe it was all four at the same time. This is an incredible play on words, right? When Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church, which one of those four things did he have in mind? I think he had all four in mind. I think he understood that the church, the ecclesia, the assembly, the sacred assembly of God's people would be built upon all four of those things. It would be built upon him, Jesus, the chief cornerstone, right? It would be built upon Peter, the first among the apostles and the prophets who are referred to as living stones, who built the foundation of God's church in Ephesians 2. It's built, of course, upon Peter's confession of faith, which applies to all of us and makes all of us stones in the hands of God, living stones. And quite literally, I think Jesus was talking about that place pictured behind me, the rock of the gods in Caesarea Philippi, which was a place of pagan worship, pagan worship. It was demonic through and through. It was a place where people gathered to worship the the false, the idolatrous god Pan. And what Jesus was saying, and and this is insinuated in his final statement, that the church will prevail against the gates of hell. What Jesus was saying is that I'm going to build my church on top of every other idea about God that is not true or right. Jesus is saying, my church is going to be victorious over every idea that opposes it. Every power and principality that opposes it. The powers of hell will not prevail against my church. Think about that. What Jesus is saying is that there is nothing in all of creation, heaven or earth, there's nothing, no power, no power can can be victorious over the church. He's given victory to us, the sacred assembly of his people. He's given us authority to govern on his behalf and to do it from a position of victory over the gates of hell. Now, there's a lot more to be said about this. So we're going to come back to the end of verse 18 and and then what Jesus explains in verse 19, which goes hand in glove with what I've just shared with you. But our time is up, so let me close with one story, a powerful story I heard uh, just a couple weeks ago from uh, one of my newer friends, uh, an African man named Bishop Anthony Yeboah. Um, I've shared a few stories about uh, Bishop Yeboah already, and I heard another one uh, just a few weeks ago. Um, He's helping to lead a group of pastors that are gathering routinely to pray, um, to meet and to pray for our city. And um, I've met him through some Kaggle events and some other things that have happened um, over the last several months, gotten to know him a little bit. And what I've learned about Bishop Yeboah is that, he, that while he lives here in Charlotte and ministers in the greater Lansing area, his heart and the real um, bulk of his ministry, substance of his ministry, is actually in Africa, in Ghana, and in uh, Côte d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast, um, two countries that are right next to each other in Africa. And he's got lots of stories to tell about his times of of ministry in Africa. And uh, he told a new story that I hadn't heard before um, at the most recent pastor's gathering a few weeks ago. All right, so this is firsthand story. This is not like, you know, just uh, a rumor or whatever. Um, This is a true story from the lips of someone who was there and saw it take place. He said he was leading a group of pastors on a ministry trip in Nigeria Okay, Henry and goodness, good to see you. Um, leading a group of pastors on a ministry trip in Nigeria, and they went to a remote village um, in the, you know, out in the country and uh, went to call upon the village chief. And uh, they had heard, uh, I guess by word of mouth, that a young girl had died unexpectedly in the village. A nine-year-old girl um, had died. Uh, some sickness or disease, whatever, and that the, the chief was in mourning and the whole village was in mourning, and so they thought we should go and try to minister to this village. And so uh, Bishop Yeboah takes this group of pastors, they arrive, they greet the chief, they walk in uh, to where the chief is, is gathered, and they see there, the chief is um, in the presence of the chief, is the, the dead body of this nine year old girl. And True story, okay? At one point in their conversation, the chief, who's at this point a, a bit hostile toward them, kind of uncertain about what they're there for, what they represent, and wanting to display his power, actually speaks some, some words over the girl, the nine-year-old girl, dead girl, and her body begins to levitate off the ground. Literally. And Bishop Yeboah says, and, and he's quite humorous in his way of describing the story, he says at that moment I think all of us wanted to leave and, and go to the bathroom, which is his way of saying we, were, we wanted to pee our pants, <laughs> like, like they didn't know what to do, they, in that moment they were so confronted by the, the power of darkness, the powers of hell, that it was like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me, did we just see this happen? But then, in that moment, feeling the temptation to want to just pee his pants, but in choosing instead to remember who he is and who the church is and and what Jesus said about the church, Bishop Yeboah found the faith to raise his voice and to say, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command this girl uh, to stop levitating. And boom, her body fell back down to the ground, just like that. One word of authority in the name of Jesus. And the body fell right back to where it was. And the chief looked at him, startled, like, what did you just do? And the chief then went on to say, as they began to converse about what had happened, that he had never encountered a power greater than the power that he had. But now... He'd seen with his own eyes that the power in this name, the name of Jesus, is greater than the power that I've previously possessed. And he gave his life to Christ, and he led the entire village to give their lives to Christ. I share that story with you because it's a picture of the conflict that Jesus speaks of at the end of this promise, right? On this rock that is faith in Christ, I will build my ecclesia, my people assembled together for my purposes, and the gates of hell will not prevail against them. That's an incredible promise, friends. And with it comes incredible purpose. We have to know who we are and what we're called to do and be on Jesus' behalf. And when we do, the gates of hell cannot stand in our way. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.